You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Well, if you've, uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to uh, the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, we are, for the next four weeks, going to look at uh, John's introduction. Uh, it's called the Prologue of John. It's going to be um, John's Christmas story, if you will. Um, the, uh, if you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew's going to begin by telling us, he's going to go all the way back, to Abraham to begin uh, Jesus' story. If you were to look at the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke, he goes all the way back uh, to Adam to tell Jesus' story. Mark, he just jumps right into Jesus' ministry. Uh, But John, John's actually going to go further back than that. And um, as we think about Christmas, Christmas is actually, um, as as we think about the, the Bethlehem and uh, the manger and, and all of the things that go with the nativity scene, all that, uh, what we're thinking about is a backstory. And John's backstory, the backstory that he tells, uh, goes back further uh, than any of the other Gospels. You know, backstories are fascinating. We, um, we really love them. Um, backstories um, have made uh, writers and, and movie producers uh, millions and billions of dollars. If you think about one of the greatest backstories um, of all time ever told, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Now, you might have thought you knew what was going to happen, uh, but the reality is when Darth Vader tells Luke Skywalker, I am your father, um, that was one of the great backstory reveals of all time, right? I mean, you, you were there. I mean, you, 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 you were there. Marvel and DC have made millions telling the backstories of Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman's coming out here pretty soon. I just saw that Aquaman's coming out in a couple of years, and we can't wait, right? You want to know, where did Aquaman come from? Backstories. We're fascinated with them. History and background and beginning and Christmas, in its own way, is a backstory. But it's only part of it. I mean, the manger and Bethlehem and the shepherds and the wise men and, and Herod, that's only part of it. There, there's, a, there's actually a deeper backstory, a more mysterious backstory, a backstory that goes back even before the time of the Bible, if time is even the right word. And it's also a place where our backstory begins, too. And to tell Jesus' backstory is in some ways to tell our backstory. And I want us to see this morning that that's where John is going to begin. Now, to, to orient you a little bit, this first 18 verses of John's gospel, it's called the prologue. It's, it's a poem, really. It's 18 verses that John probably wrote after he finished writing the rest of the gospel. It's a, it's a poem that he writes. It's, a, it's high poetry in some ways. And one author writes it this way. He says, John traces his account of Jesus farther back than the beginning of the ministry, farther back than the virgin birth, farther back than even the creation. 
the account must reach back to the eternal divine word, God's agent in creation and the fount of life and light. It's a great uh, picture for us. In fact, John's going to lead us to the verse. He's, he's going to be leading us to a verse we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, but it's meant to knock our socks off. It's meant to kind of leave us dead in our tracks. It's, it's verse 14. I'll read it for you. But when we get there in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about it for a second this morning. But here's what it says. It's where he's meaning for us to, to get to. It says this, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what he's leading us to. That's what he wants us to know about this man, Jesus. But for now, I want us to turn our attention to where he begins. John's going to open up the gospel in really the most startling place. He's going to transport us to a time, if time's the right word, a time before the Bible, a time before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to Listen to what John writes here in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, John begins here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now listen, we, we actually, in all truth, we can actually spend um, the rest of the morning, the rest of the month, the, all of 2017 and really in all truth, the rest of our lives. And those three phrases that make up that one sentence, the beginning of John's gospel, and never get to the end of all that John means. He uses this word in the Greek, it's logos, it's translated word in your Bibles, it's probably capitalized word. In logos, in the first century, is this very interesting word, and a lot of people, have, you know, tried to discover, you know, so John, exactly what is it that you mean? John is a, is a Hebrew man. He lived in uh, Israel in the first century. He's a Hebrew man using a Greek word, logos, and, and, the, and the meaning behind logos really had a couple of, uh, of histories. There's a, there's a Hebrew line behind it, a, a Hebrew um, origin behind it, uh, um, from the Hebrew Scriptures, you could go back to Genesis chapter 1. Certainly, he means for us to, to think about that. In Genesis chapter 1, the, the Hebrew Scriptures tell us, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and how God did it was that God did it with the Word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33 verse 6 by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. In the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew way of thinking, the mind of God is revealed by the word of God. It is the cooperation of the mind of God and the word of God in creation. 
To the Hebrew mind, the, the word of, of God, a word is more than just a sound. It's something that's independent. It's something that has power. It's something that does something. That's why the Hebrew language is such a careful language. Hebrew language only has 10,000 words. The Greek language, by contrast, has 200,000 words. Men spoke Hebrew. Women spoke Greek. It, um, I'm just kidding. That's not really true. But for instance, in the Hebrew culture, a Hebrew blessing, it, was, um, it had power. It was, it was irrevocable. You, you remember this from the Old Testament. Remember, uh, Abraham blessed Isaac, and he couldn't take it back. It was irrevocable. It had, it had power. The, a word was authoritative. It certainly could be that that is what John had in mind. He, he also, however, could have a very Greek meaning of the word logos in mind because John, John's actually in Ephesus when he's writing this gospel. And the word logos is actually born in the city of Ephesus about 500 years before John's writing this. In fact, in 560 B.C., the word logos goes all the way back its origin goes back to Ephesus. There's a guy, a, a philosopher, Ephesian philosopher, Greek philosopher, named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus is writing, and he's noticing something. He's saying, listen, what I'm noticing is, is that the world seems to be in a state of flux. And, and the way that he described it was this. The illustration he used was a river. And he said, listen, you could go to a river, and you can put your foot in a river at any given moment. You can take your foot out, and then you can put your foot in a river, in the same river, a moment later, and you're putting your foot in an entirely different river because the river is constantly moving. You never encounter a same, the same river twice. Everything is in a constant state of flux. But why, if everything is in a constant state of flux, is everything not in total chaos? If everything's constantly changing, why is it not in chaos? What keeps it from being totally haphazard? And what he concluded was, that which controls and orders and keeps everything in a pattern... That is Logos. Well, once the idea of Logos entered the Greek thought, it never departed. There were some Greek philosophers that came along, some Stoics, and they picked it up, and they advanced the idea, and they began to say, oh, no, Logos is even more than that. It pervades everything. In fact, here's the whole idea. Logos orders the entire universe. It, it pervades everything. In fact, it's not personal, but it controls everything. It organizes everything. It rules everything. It is a universal consciousness. In fact, it even transcends the gods. It even transcends Zeus himself. Zeus himself calls upon Logos for order. Well, after the Stoics, a man named Philo, a Jewish Greek philosopher, comes along, and he says even more than that. He says, oh no, Logos is even richer and deeper than that. It's, it's even more than that. In fact, 
Philo knew all about the Hebrews. He knew all about what the Hebrews believed. He said, look, Logos is even more than that. Here's what Logos is. It's the thought of God stamped upon the universe. In fact, Logos is the only reason we know anything about God. It's how God has communicated to all of creation and to all of man. That's what Logos is. Without the concept of Logos, without that great Logos out there, we wouldn't even know what God was. And I, I say all this, I labor all of this, because you need to know how significant Logos was in the thinking of every first century person out there. To give you an illustration of what that might mean for us today, it's hard for us because we're so Western, we're so scientific. In fact, in third grade, we begin to take science and we have our parents do our science fair projects for us and all kinds of stuff like that, okay? But to, to help us understand it, it might be like this, to give us a concept that we could relate. There is something similar, it's not exact, but it's similar that we can all relate to. There's something that, that we all know about, we've never seen it, but we all know about it. In fact, we could all name it, although we've never seen it. We all, every single day, encounter it. We've come up against its force. In fact, when you woke up this morning, you came up against its force. In fact, even in this very moment, you are experiencing the effects of it, and you can't get away from it. It's called gravity. In fact, you could walk out here, you could shimmy up the, um, the beams that are being erected out there on the side of the building for the expansion. You could climb up to the top of the building, you could go and you could declare about yourself that you could fly. But the truth is, you can't fly because the laws of gravity, you cannot prevail against them. Gravity is greater than you are. And you know this. Gravity is what's keeping you in your chair and your feet on the ground. Gravity is what's keeping the earth spinning on its axis. Gravity is what's keeping the earth going around the sun and the moon around the earth and the solar system and rotating and the, the universe. I mean, gravity is what's keeping all of these things happening. And it is like this, and I do not want us to miss the weight of what John is doing. When John gets to verse 14, it is like John is saying this. You know gravity. And you know how significant and important that it is. And here's what I want you to know about Jesus, this man from Nazareth, this carpenter. He is gravity become flesh. Gravity, this thing that keeps you in your seat and your feet on the ground and the earth rotating on its axis and revolving around the sun and the moon going around the earth, that's gravity in the flesh. Oh, he's not impersonal, he's personal. And oh, by the way, he loves you. Gravity made flesh. It is that radical of an idea that John is proclaiming, no less. You see, for John, the Word was not a principle, but a living being, the source of life, not a personification, but a person. 
and that person divine. Listen to what he says. The second part, the second phrase, the word was with God, distinct from God, distinct from him. The logos, the word, and God the Father, they're not the same person. They're of the same essence. We'll see that in just a second. But they're with it denotes this, and there's an intimacy of relationship from one person to the other. This is not just mere proximity. They weren't just next to each other or near each other, but they were with each other. They had a priority of relationship. They had an interaction with each other. And then he says, and the word was He, he was the same or of the same essence. What the Word was, God was. The Word was fully God. It's not to equate with God. They're different persons, but equally God. It's, it's like the pinnacle of all that John is saying about the Son of God. Jesus has the same nature, the same essence as God himself. The Word was with God, but you could be with God and not be God, right? The angels were with God and they weren't God. Satan was with God and he wasn't God. But John leaves no question about this. Not only was Jesus with God, but he was God. The very essence of God. All the attributes of God were the attributes of Jesus. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said while he was on earth, were the words and the doings of God. It's radical. In fact, it is so radical that if it is not true, what John writes is blasphemy. And if it is not true, and if it will not hold, we should burn this book. We should ban it. We should build a fire and throw our copies of it into the fire if it is not true. And to be sure, throughout the centuries, it has been burned and it has been banned. But it hasn't been destroyed. It has prevailed. And you know more than that, it has been read over and over and over throughout the centuries. And you know what happens? People get saved. They read it and they are saved. I mean, I don't want us to miss the depth of what John is saying and, and at the same time the absolute simplicity of what John's saying. You know what Augustine said about John's gospel? It is so shallow that children can play in it, and yet so deep that elephants can drown in it. Isn't that beautiful? He's exactly right. Well, he goes on. Look at verse 2. He says this. He says, and he was in the beginning with God. So, not simply Although we are indeed, we, we are going to meet a great man in Jesus. John is going to introduce us to a great man in Jesus. But he wants us to know from the very beginning, this is more than a great man. If you come away from John's gospel and you say, man, that Jesus is really a great man, you miss the point. 
Because he wants you to know from the very beginning, he's not introducing you to a great man. That this gospel very clearly is the introduction of the very God in a very real human being. That's what he wants you to know. It's that startling that he became flesh. Now look in verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, and without him not anything made uh, without him was not anything made that was made. Now, so through him means by, by the means of. It, it means that the things he made came through him in a way that they came through him in a way that, that they were all of what he was. It isn't that Jesus created in a way that what he created didn't bear his personality. It's a term that describes what, what an artist produces. The, the artist produces something that bears the mark of himself. So, so to use the word, maybe the best way, through him reminds us that the whole creation bears the mark of God. It, it has the marks of Jesus all over it. Like It doesn't even need the artist's signature. You can just look at it and go, oh yeah, I know that's Jesus's. Creation is Christ-formed, and it bears the signature of Christ. Young, young Life, the, the worldwide youth outreach, its motto is this. As it, as it takes the gospel to teenagers all over the world, its motto is this, you were made for this. And it's perfect. It sums it up perfectly because it's exactly what you were made for. You were made by Jesus for Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Colossians chapter 1, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Romans 11 from him and to him and through him are all things. All creation, including what is most internal and most intimate in us, has the imprint, the shape, the mark of Jesus on it. That's what John's saying. Then he goes a step further. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So not only did Jesus create, but he breathed life, sustaining, ongoing, procreating life into his creation. So he animated creation. Not just physical life, but moral life, intellectual, spiritual life as well. So Paul in, in Acts 17, 28, he... he draws upon a, 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 a poet of the day and says, for in him we live and move and have our being, but more than that, the ability not only to draw breath, but to draw conclusions, intellectual capacity, moral capacity, spiritual capacity, created by the Word of God, in the image of God, enlightened by God, to know God. Augustine prayed, O God, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And yet, John, 
in this very gospel. In just a couple of chapters, in John chapter 3, verse 19, do you know what he says? Where he says here, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You know what he says in just a couple of chapters? But men loved the darkness. It's tragic. Paul will say the same thing. But men loved the darkness. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Created in the image of God to bear the light. And yet, men loved darkness. It's the story of humanity. Lovers of darkness. You know, I think that's why John leads us the way he does to verse 5, which I think is the point of this first five verses. You see, in these first five verses, he leads us to verse 5, because in verse 5, here's, here's really the hope he's been leading us to. This is why he gives us the backstory. I think. Look at what he says in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The reason I think he leads us to verse 5 is because of this. All the verbs up to this point have been in the past tense. Was four times. Verse 1 and 2 and then twice again in verse 4. Came into being. He used that three times in verses 3 and verses 4. But now, now he switches. The verb switches. Now it's in the present tense. He uses the word shines. You might could translate it shines on. In fact, if you wanted to remember this so that you never forgot it, you could take a pen or a pencil or a highlighter. You could circle the second S in the word shines so that you wouldn't forget that this is present tense and different from all the other verbs up to this point. Shines, present tense. In fact, it is a very strong present tense verb. It, I think he's setting us up for some very important truths that he wasn't, doesn't want us to forget as we read this gospel. In fact, I don't think he wants us to forget it this morning as we consider what it is that he's already said. You see, to all outward appearances, as you read through the Gospel of John, really as you read through all of the Gospels, you'll come to a place in the Gospel, and really the, the reason for the Gospels is to present the passion of Jesus, to present the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the Gospel. But at some point, when you come to a place in all of the Gospels, you are confronted with something that, that confounds you. You're confronted with something that confuses you. See, 
you're confronted with a man who appears to be this great teacher who teaches in a way that everyone marvels at. You're, you're confronted with someone who seems to be the very best of us. You're confronted with the one who seems to take on the establishment. You're confronted with the one who seems to be the fulfillment of all the hopes and all the promises and all the dreams of the Old Testament, not to mention humanity, not to mention yourself as the reader. And yet you find that he gets turned upon and arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross. And this one who is life, the light of men, has the life drained out of him. The darkness overwhelms him. Death seems to win. Life dies and is laid in a grave. you're confronted in that moment as a reader of the gospel. How can this be? Then who is this man? You see, John tells us at the very beginning The light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It seems that Jesus is fatally executed. It seems as though the darkness has won a decisive victory. And you know, listen, if we're honest, it seems that way then. And we read the resurrection, and we're assured of the resurrection, and then yet we remember when we wake up in the morning, or we have driven to work, or we go home, or we live in that relationship, or we struggle with that job, or that parenting situation, or that financial situation, or that sickness, or that illness, or that depression, or the whatever it is that we face in the present, and the now, and we realize, hey, listen, it feels like the darkness is winning right now, not the light. It feels like the darkness is the one that's shining on right now. I mean, all I have to do is turn on the TV, and I'll tell you what, it seems like... You ever see that movie, that terrible movie, children's movie, The NeverEnding Story? It seems like that thing's happening. Right? And the nothingness seems to be growing. That's the way it seems. And if you were just to ask me, I thought it's supposed to get better. It seems, seems to me. Seems to me it's getting worse. That's out there, not to mention. Not to mention what it feels like sometimes in here. But nevertheless, John writes this, and he writes it in a way. He writes it in a way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that nevertheless, it will always be the deepest fact in all of history and in all of eternity that the light shines 
on. It shines on in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, never will overcome it. He uses the strongest present tense verb that intends to reach out to all future believing readers to assure them the light shines on even now. Maybe it seems like the darkness is triumphing. But it never puts out the light of the resurrection. It will never put out the light of the witness of the resurrection. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, after Peter has just confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells Peter, and I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, this confession you've just made, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. John writes a letter later on after this gospel and he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You know, I said in the beginning that I think what John's doing is he's writing a backstory. A backstory that takes us all the way to the beginning, actually, the beginning before the beginning before the beginning. And I think he means to draw our attention to the beginning of Genesis. Because you know what the beginning of Genesis says in Genesis chapter 1? It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But you know what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, is one of the most interesting verses. It's controversial, and I'm not going to get into all the controversy, but I will read it. I'll tell you what it says. Genesis 1, verse 2, is a backstory, no matter how you take it or what you think it means. It says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, darkness in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, represents evil and death. It is not conducive to life. It was chaos. It was emptiness. It was darkness. There was no life. There was no light. And in many ways, the work of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is a work of redemption. We don't have many details God's Word is interested in making sure we know the full extent of God's power. And I think that's why John takes us all the way back to the beginning again, to creation, which is a redemption, to the Creator, the Redeemer. Only this time, it's mankind's backstory. It's your backstory. It's my backstory. And it began in the garden. See, we were created for light, but we loved the darkness. And the darkness covered over humanity, chaos, and emptiness, and death. It is human history living out the backstory. Listen, it's each one of us living out the backstory. You know it, you know your darkness, you know your shadows.
You know where you run from the light. You know there's not anything you can do. The chaos, the emptiness, the void that you have. And you can't fix any of it. And you know it. And that's why John begins here. Announcing the Creator and the Redeemer, Jesus. This is where the gospel begins. To step into your world, into your story. Because a new creation is about to happen. The Redeemer has come. A new work of creation by God. Being announced by John. Yet another darkness will be spoken into. Another deep is being hovered over. Another chaos restored. Another void filled. Another separation announced. Another work of creation completed. Another Sabbath rest accomplished. The Word is bringing into being the new creation in which God says once more, let there be light. You know why John writes this? So you will believe. That's why he writes it. You know, we began the service by lighting this Advent candle. If we had done it right, what we would have done is we would have blacked out the room so that it was pitch black. You couldn't have seen anything. And then what we would have done is we would have lit the candle in the darkness. We, uh, it would just popped. I mean, we just said, oh man, it's amazing how powerful light is in the darkness. We don't think about it much in the days of electricity, but in the first century, light was fragile. I mean, it's easy to blow out a candle and, and the light is gone. So powerful a flame to chase away the darkness, yet so easily extinguished. But you know, the light of Jesus is powerful, and it's eternal, and it's not fragile at all. In fact, His presence, in His presence, it's the darkness that's extinguished. Listen to your future, not your backstory. Listen to your future as a believer. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each season. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, in a sense, it's not as though the candle will be blown out. It's as though the darkness will be blown out for eternity. The light will shine on. In him is life. And that life is the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, and never will overcome it. John writes, invites you, bids you, come, believe. That's the Christmas story. That's why Jesus comes. So if you would, would you bow with me? I'm going to call the men forward to come and we're going to, the, the guys who are going to help us with communion. We're going to remember um, not only the coming of Christ into the world and the, what we call the incarnation, what we celebrate as Christmas, but also his death, his burial, and his resurrection, what we celebrate in communion. It's a fitting morning to do that. And so what we'll do is I'll um, pray for us and we'll pass out these elements, the juice and the the bread and the juice, and we'll wait till we've all been served, and then we'll, uh, we'll partake of these elements together. And as we uh, are passing them out, it's a great time to, to ask the Spirit of God to search your hearts. And time of prayer and confession and thanksgiving as we seek to honor God with this time of fellowship and exalt His Son, Jesus. If you would, would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the words that you inspired John to write. These magnificent and high words. And yet, Father, words accessible to the smallest child. Father, I pray you you draw us close with them that they would not return void. Father, you'd, you'd heal us with them. You'd build our faith with them. Father, for those that have never believed, would you, would you ignite faith and cause them to believe even today? We trust you with all these things. In our time of celebrating communion, we pray you would get all the glory as we exalt Jesus the only way we can and by the power of your Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.